Hey, wiretappers, I lied to you. Well, not really. I just didn't realize this was going to be coming up. Cam and I did all those Mob and the Teamsters episodes, and we did that special little story about Joey Iupa and the big fish. And I mentioned in that that I was going to be throwing up those next three episodes right away, but I got a chance to interview retired FBI agent Charlotte Lang, who was one of the agents interviewed on Netflix's series Fear City. I'm supposed to be able to interview one of the tech agents, Joe Catamesa, and then I'm supposed to interview the director after that. So I'll get those other three episodes up, but right now, listen to my interview of Charlotte Lang. You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Welcome all you wiretappers out there. Here with a, another episode of Gangland Wire in the Gangland Wire studio. I'm just going to be by myself today, but I've got a special guest on the telephone. Charlotte Lang was assigned to the New York City Division in the Organized Crime Squad. Agent Lang was one of the several FBI agents that were assigned to the commission case in which the most recent uh, Netflix three-part documentary series called Fear City was about. As she'll tell you, they had a set of really aggressive FBI supervisors, they got organized against the mob in New York City because it seemed like they owned New York City at the time. They had a set of really aggressive prosecutors in the U.S. Attorney's Office at that time. Rudy Giuliani will come in and and take over the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office and and had several really good uh, aggressive prosecutors like Michael Chertoff, who you see on TV every once in a while commenting on things. They decided just taking down one mobster here and there at a time take down a John Gotti and there'll just be somebody else will rise up. They decided they needed to take down the entire family, the the heads of the five families in New York City. You know, there's five families. There's the uh, Lucchese family, the Bonanno family, the Genovese family, the Colombo family, and the Gambino family. And, and between the five of them, they pretty much dominated the construction business, the uh, labor unions, the concrete pouring business, the docks, uh, you name it, and and. They owned it in in New York City, and you could hardly make a move without the mob getting a little piece of that action. So they got together and decided they would take it down, and it was reported in a really well-done documentary on Netflix called Fear City. My only criticism of the documentary is that they use a couple of mob guys, Michael Francese and and this, uh, I can't think of his first name, A-Light guy. You guys, if you follow things on Facebook at all, you'll have seen him in arguments with the Gottis. He supposedly was a uh, an enforcer for the Gottis, uh, Junior Gotti at one time. He had some kind of an ongoing argument with them. I, I don't know. I don't understand it. Uh, neither one of them were really too involved with this case, but they do you know, set a little color and kind of give the other side of the story of what it was like. Primarily, this documentary is told from the viewpoint of the U.S. Attorney's Office and the FBI agents, the street agents who actually worked it. They got some great footage of guys going in and planting hidden microphones, of doing wiretaps. They use uh, and make extensive use of the wiretaps, uh, kind of like I did in my book. Leaving Vegas, how FBI wiretaps ended mob domination of Las Vegas casinos. And my movie on the skimming case from Las Vegas, Gangland Wire, I have made extensive use of our wiretaps here in Kansas City. I invite you to watch that series on Netflix called Fear City, and 
Now listen in to me having a conversation with uh, retired agent Charlotte Lang. Hi, Charlotte. Gary Jenkins here. In, in the small world category, I don't know if you got an email from your sister, but one of my podcast fans, as uh, soon as he heard about you being on that uh, show, he uh, messaged me and said, well, I, I went to high school with a cousin of Charlotte Lang's, and, and I think I can get him to get his mother to email you. So <laughs> if you got an email from your sister to be on a podcast show, you're on it. <laughs> I have some dedicated fans out there that want me to get good guests. So, uh, (laughs) anyhow, uh, moving right along to to make the the most use of your time, it was uh, it was a great show. Of course, you know I was a uh, I was a Kansas City police officer and and in the intelligence unit and worked with the FBI on the uh, casino skimming case that that which the movie Casino was based on. All started right here in Kansas City. So, I've got a lot of familiarity with that with what you guys did and it was a it was a pretty good show i really liked the uh the three-part series that you guys did and you did it from the police fbi law enforcement viewpoint was new york your office of preference or was that your first preference. office no actually i came into the bureau in 81 and i was living in uh, new haven connecticut and I went, after training school, I went back to New Haven, subsequently was assigned to the Bridgeport Resident Agency. And the program that I came in under uh, the Bureau at that time was the new agents coming in would spend two to four years. And you'd go back to your office, the office you came in for about six to eight months. Then you would go for two to four years to uh, a medium-sized office and then on to what they called uh, a top ten so what happened with me is I was sent to San Antonio after doing my seven, eight months back in New Haven. And when I was there, well, less than a year, the, this was back you know, in the 80s, whenever Reagan was president and the economy and Wall Street was starting to boom and everything was becoming uh, expensive. The New York office was actually losing agents. Agents were um, resigning, some to take their jobs in New York, some to go back because basically the cost of living, me being in San Antonio, if I would go to New York from San Antonio, I would still be paid the same amount of money, and I was living very, very well in San Antonio, Texas. But I always had this thing about working in New York ever since I was a child, and my father took me on a business trip to New York. So what I did was this teletype came out, and it was requesting volunteers. Well, I'm sure they weren't getting many volunteers, but I raised my hand. It's like, yes, I'll go. And uh, the head of the division, the special agent in charge, came up to me and he said, okay, he said, everything's squared away. What would you like to work? And I said, because I was on a white-collar squad, but I was the only female agent in the San Antonio division at that time, which encompassed all of South Texas which meant I went to everything, bank robberies, I did undercover things, cameo roles and stuff like that, just for the mere fact that they needed a woman, a woman agent. So even though I was in San Antonio one day less than a year, but it was just this great learning experience. And before I left to the head of the division, I was on the phone, he slipped me a note and said, you're gonna work organized crime which the only thing I knew about organized crime was The Godfather movie. So I was going, when I came in, it was like, I was told I was going um, 
to uh, a brand new squad was going to be formed. Linda Vecchio was going to be the supervisor. And people were coming in, all young agents like me were, were being transferred in, but we were, until everybody got there, they kind of farmed us out to working other things. And Jim Costler said to me, I'm going to put you on the um, Genovese family squad, and you can transcribe Title Three tapes, the wiretaps. No that boy. Going on. <laughs> oh, and what a learning experience. I mean, here's like these mob guys sitting around talking, and uh, but I learned, I did it for six weeks. But in the meantime, during that six-week period, because there were so few women working criminal matters, most of the female agents when I was there were assigned to the Foreign Counterintelligence Division. So we were pulled off to do surveillances and um, arrests because we would do these big, you know, arrest drug uh, the drug squads would round up you know 20 25 individuals who had been indicted and i would be on an arrest team so it was a pretty busy um six weeks until everybody was in place and our squad actually formed wow that was uh, so you were one of the first women on the oc squad i would say in in new york city is that correct well, no, no, there were on the Columbus squad at that particular time, there was uh, one female agent who I worked with very closely because we did some um, surveillance, going in restaurants and sitting next yeah. to these guys, yeah. trying to overhear them, because she was pregnant at the time, <laughs> and nobody pays any attention to two women, particularly one who's, who's pregnant. And then on the Genevieve squad, there were two women there. And um, I'm thinking, uh, of course, Marilyn was out uh, on the Gambino squad. Because, I mean, the office encompasses New Rochelle, uh, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island. So there there was just a handful of women. And there were a few women there before me working OC. Okay, yeah. I'll tell you, to the listeners out there, having a... A woman on a surveillance like that is, uh, you, you just can't beat it. Like like Charlotte just said, and a pregnant woman, man, that's gold. That is gold. <laughs> Nobody's got to pay attention to well, you. And, well, we sat right next to Paul Castellano, and, you know, what, the important thing, and, and it was stressed in the documentary, is we had to put these people together. Right. And uh, uh, one of the things was we, we wanted to get as much photo, uh, as many photographs as possible of these people. And when we had source information that uh, Fat Tony was meeting with Paul Castellano in this very upscale restaurant on the Upper East Side, Corinne and I went in. It was very, uh, God, there weren't many tables with a uh, very intimate kind of setting. And I said to the Mater D, I said, as you can see, my friend is pregnant, and could we sit over at that table because she's been having some complications like with the draft with the air conditioning? <laughs> well, they put us, like, right next to Fat Tony and Paul Castellano, and Bilotti was there, and I can't remember who the other one was. And, of course, one of the things that they were doing is they were arguing over money uh, during this they weren't angry at one another, but you could tell that Castellano in particular, he was very unhappy. And what we had to do, because the meeting lasts for, we're there for a couple hours, we had to keep eating. <laughs> of course, she couldn't drink, 
he couldn't drink, but I could order wine. And then after, you know, after lunch, something to drink. And the whole time we were trying to carry on a conversation, but listen to these, to what's going on at this table. And I know Corinne and I would have these exchanges. Did you hear what I just heard? Because we had to go back to the office after this and write up uh, a 302, which is a report um, of everything that we heard. Because when I testified in the commission case, of course, the defense attorneys all had a copy of that 302. And of course, they were trying to pick it apart um, as part of my cross-examination. Man, that's that, Charlotte. That's a great story. That that is a good one. That that, that says it all right there. I mean, they, now of course Joe Pistone did some great work, and he was all undercover and acting like he was a mobster. But but you guys who go out and just be in the general area and see who's meeting together and and pick up little snippets of conversation and and things like that. That's that's just as important in, in many many ways. So uh, uh, that's that that's a great story, man. That's that is really cool. Uh, you know, you know, one of the things that we had, we had to do, which I think the series didn't uh, bring up or stress was, at that time, you have to remember that for decades, uh, mob guys were being arrested and prosecuted. And the number one defense was, what is this thing, La Cosa Nostra? There's no such thing as a La Cosa Nostra. My client, he isn't in the mob. This is like a conspiracy that the government has cooked up. So one of the things that we had to do from the very beginning is we had to prove that the actual organization existed. And I even went up to upstate New York because, you know, that meeting in November of 1957 at Joe Barbera's house in Appalachian, New York, uh, Edgar Crosswell, who was the um, New York State Cooper, who broke up that meeting, he was still alive. And an agent from our Binghamton office, I had sent up a request that I wanted to interview him because I mean, he even actually met Carmine Galanti a couple of months before because Galanti was in town and he couldn't find Barbera's house. So he went into a, a business. Somehow Crosswell uh, ran into him or talked to him or something like that. So that's why Crosswell was keeping tabs on Joe Barbera's house. He was a bitter man. I mean, I just said hello. I sat down. I went to say something to him. And he's, and all he did was talk about how horribly he was treated by the FBI and that Hoover did nothing to uh, protect him. But, I mean, fortunately, we had Joe Pistone undercover. And in the meantime, Angelo Leonardo, who was the boss of the Cleveland family, he was in jail for the rest of his life. And there was a very astute agent in Cleveland who would go and visit Ange and develop the rapport with him because the Cleveland family reported to the Genovese family. So Angelo Leonardo knew all these players because he would go and visit that Tony Salerno. That's who he would meet with. So Ange decided um, to cooperate. So with having, so now we have live bodies that we can put on the stand to basically uh, shore up the Carmine, that, that yes, there is such a thing as the LCN and the whole, the three murders, the Galanti murder and his two associates. Yeah, and I think even more because importantly, had no, you, you, had to pro- you had to prove that there was a commission of the mafia uh, was yes, probably the most important. that, uh, Joe Bonanno, old Joe Bonanno wrote a book 
And I remember driving to a bookstore in New York to get that book. And the sixth chapter in the book, because he was kicked out of the mob, kind of, and everything. And the sixth chapter in that book was called The Commission. And he details his troubles that he had with the commission. And, of course, we um, subpoenaed him to testify before a federal grand jury, which he refused to do. So what Giuliani decided to do was, well, he, he, he has been feigning this heart attack since 1957, had this very bad heart condition. So Rudy decided, okay, we'll, we'll go to Arizona. We'll go to Tucson. And we did. Pat and I, a couple of prosecutors, Rudy, the judge, two of his clerks, we actually went to St. Mary's Hospital in Tucson to, to get him to testify in the grand jury. And so we had this hearing, and Judge Owen held him in contempt. And Rudy had um, arranged with the marshals because typically he, Joe Bonanno had been paying this hospital, you know, he was very generous to this hospital and, and everything. So Bonanno expected that he was going to either be confined to this hospital or maybe to the, um, the federal institution out in Springfield. But Rudy had arranged with the marshals that if he was held in contempt, they immediately took him in custody and, and took him to jail. And it was the only time he was in He didn't get out of jail until the trial was actually over. And it was the only time in his long life that he ever went to jail because he refused to testify. But we had his book. Yeah. Where he laid it all out. So you got the commission, and and you had to prove some predicate acts here to to make your RICO case, and, and the Galente right. hit was was one of the main ones. I thought that was that's fascinating how y'all put that together. Watching that uh, footage, that surveillance footage of this Bruno and Delicado getting high five from uh, people from another family right after the hit. The, the Galante hit occurred in uh, July. Of 79. And of course, the Ravenite Social Club was always under constant surveillance in Little Italy. All this was going on between the FBI and the PD in 79. I didn't get to New York until the summer of 83. Giuliani got there in June. I got there, I think it was in August of 83. So this was a known that um, at that particular time, but Bruno was on the lamb. And I had a source who we actually went down to Florida and hooked up with a couple of agents in the Miami division to see whether we could find Bruno. And it wasn't really until Bruno and, and Delicato was arrested up on the George Washington Bridge one evening waving a 357 Magnum and being a convicted felon in possession of a, a firearm we could get an arrest warrant for him. But the Port Authority, uh, it was all over the newspapers, the suspected mob guy, you know, the next morning arrested on the George Washington Bridge. And he was on the New Jersey side, not on the uh, New York side. So they really didn't, we couldn't get anything about where he lived. Uh, but the woman that was with him had a drug habit. And we were able to trace the fact that she had to go periodically to give a urine sample at this clinic in North Jersey. And so we sat on that clinic, and about two minutes before it closed, Bruno finally showed up. Because we looked for him for years because we knew that he was one of the shooters just based on that tape. But the problem was that we didn't have any fingerprints to match, it, match up to him. 
So when we, our Newark division, arrested him and did major case prints, we sent them down to the lab, and as it's portrayed in the series, I mean, that was one happy day when the lab called and said, yes, it's Bruno's palm print that's on the, the door uh, handle of the vehicle. That was the getaway car, the, the car that somebody had identified that was used by the, the, the guys that hit him. Right, and the young woman who did that, she had fled New York, and she had been in the winds for, you know, quite a while. And one of our divisions found her. And Now, this woman, you can't imagine how terrified she was. A couple of agents, the agents that uh, found her spent some time with her, which came to New York. I spent some time with her. And I know Michael Chertoff and, and, and Gil and John were concerned how good of a witness she would be because she was so frightened. And the day she testified, she was so good because the jury could see this woman was so afraid. I mean, she's got these mob bosses, eight of these eight individuals that she, you know, are in front of her. And you could tell just from her testimony, she knew what she had seen and she was scared to death. Mm-hmm. So she worked out. We were so pleased after her testimony. Interesting. That was great. And, and you know, that, that whole Galante hit, and, and those of you guys out there that, that maybe don't know about the Galante hit, that's the, the famous hit. Carmine Galante was uh, kind of the declared himself the boss of the Bonanno family, and, and he was lining up a lot of Sicilians at the time uh, and, and started a, a cocaine, I mean, a heroin operation, and, and ended up being the Pizza Connection case, which I, which I did a three-part series on uh, recently. So you listeners that, that want to learn more about the Carmine Galente life and, and uh, that hit, why, go back and listen to that series. He was the one that lined up all the guys coming over from Sicily, the ones they called the zips that that a lot of them were part of that hit several of them were part of that hit and turned on him so you were you were like right, right in the middle of all this stuff there was a lot going on <laughs> mob investigation wise in new york city during this time it had to be pretty exciting it was i ran into an agent years later at a conference and i said you look familiar to me weren't you in new york in, in the 80s and he said yes and i mean one of the things that he said because he was a he was a um, uh, tech guy special ops guy and you don't we didn't see them in the office that often, but because of what was going on, you would have periodic contact with them. And he said to me, you know, Charlotte, it was kind of just like the, um, all the right people seemed to come together at the right time. I had you, you had these aggressive prosecutors, the management of the FBI and the criminal division um, from Tom Shear and, and Jim Kostler was brilliant, brilliant uh, coordinating all this information. And it was just all the right people just happened to come together. And he said it was kind of like the golden age of organized crime when we were there. <laughs> it really was. It, it was. was an exciting time. Yeah, and, and they were like at their peak. That was the way it was in Kansas City during the uh, skim investigation. The uh, the local Savella family, they were at their peak of power at that point in time. The FBI transferred mm-hmm. about 25 people in from all over the United States and started throwing up wiretaps and putting in microphones and, and drafted a bunch of us from the PD to go out and help with surveillance. And, and it was uh, uh, we had a mob war going on at the same time. It, it was the golden era. It's never been like that since. Uh, we, we worked too well. Well, 
I was just remarking to somebody the other day, when's the last time you saw a headline about a mob hit? <laughs> there used to be common or a mob bomb going off. I can't remember the last one. When I supervised the um, uh, organized crime squad in Philadelphia, that particular program, and the Philadelphia family has always been very violent, and you had the older ones trying to kill the younger ones and, and vice versa. So I think after you, I got, you, know, you get through the 90s, even when I was in New York, after the commission case was over, I started working um, uh, Asian organized crime, mm. and then the Russians in Brighton Beach. So, I mean, it kind of evolved into other groups after, you know, subsequent. Yeah, there's always somebody. They're just not as uh, as uh, romantic, shall we say. Don't get as much attention as the uh, La Cosa Nostra Mafia always has. So, uh, I don't know. I, I, another question. Did you guys... Did you know that Joe Pastone was was working at the time, or was he? I, I'm trying to remember that timeline on that, or was he already surfaced? No, he was done. We had to. We had to. He was had already been removed at, from you know the family, and he was living. I won't say where he was living, but um, we he was coming. The, the thing that was happening was at that particular time. He was going because he had contact with so many uh, different families. He was kind of like a professional witness, yeah. even though he was assigned to a particular division to the FBI. He really wasn't working cases there. He was basically there for his own protection. His own protection. So Joe came back to New York several times during um, the case, and then of course the the day of the announcement of the, the indictments, uh, he came back for that also. And a lot of these uh, you listeners out there, if I've talked about this before, when you have a big RICO investigation, RICO trial like this, you have to prove the organization. And so you've got people like Angelo Leonardo and then Joe Pistone. And, and up in Chicago, we had a guy named Ken Edo. And they brought uh, Ken Edo and Angelo Leonardo into Kansas City to, to say, yeah, there is a mafia. Yes, Virginia, there is a mafia. And, and this is the Kansas City family, and this is the Chicago family. And and this is a picture of them, and this is how they break down, and, and, and this is who answers to who And in order to convince the jury that there is a mafia. Once you get over that hump, then you prove those predicate crimes, and, and then you have to prove that they met together at some point in time and ordered some of this stuff. And, and so that kind of brings us to that uh, latter part of the movie where they got the surveillance of the commission meeting. Uh, I don't remember the agent's name where he had an informant say, hey, there's going to be a meeting in the commission, and it's going to be at this date and time in this place and and he's thinking oh yeah sure oh sure sure yeah tell me all about it and and, and you guys set up and and lo and behold there they come walking out that was that was a heck of a surveillance there right well we had we uh that house after, you know subsequent to that uh we bugged it Oh, did but you? they never went back. Ah, yeah, they yeah. never went back. And one of the things that I had to do is because, you know, you have to notify somebody once, the, you know, the case is adjudicated that they have been the target of a of a electronic surveillance. And every month I had to go to a federal judge in the Eastern District and him to sign off that, no, I, I, a non-disclosure mm-hmm. until this is over, we will identify to the people because they were using i think it was tommy bellotti's cousin's house yeah. on, um, on staten island for this meeting yeah that's but like it, i said we put a microphone in there we're hoping to actually catch a commission meeting on um electronic surveillance but they never went back to that house 
Yeah, yeah, that's too bad. That that happens, you know. You just you, you, they they understand that if you build a history on a place, they finally figure that out. If you build a history on that place, then they probably better not go back and use it again, just in case somebody gets a history on it, because they they figured out that that's part of the probable cause to get uh, uh, an affidavit together that a judge will sign that yeah they've done this in this location before and and so they you know it's a constant game of cat and mouse they're figuring out what what your skill levels and and tools are and and you're trying to figure out what their skill levels and tools are and then go after them so it's uh it's an interesting line of work isn't it oh yes absolutely i mean it was i mean i spent half of my career working organized crime i mean i started out because of my background white collar and at the end of my career i went back to supervising white collar cases in philadelphia have a a quieter life when you're working uh and supervising white collar cases as compared to as you know organized crime i once knew a u.s attorney and and she said you know she said uh, she worked white collar cases she said you know my clients, you know, they like show up with their lawyers and, and they talk about making deals and, and you know, they, they give you some records and, and they're always polite and mm-hmm. uh, gentlemanly. Right. And, uh, That's why I went back to my caller. I thought, oh, my goodness, this is like being on vacation. <laughs> uh, I guess one, one other question, one last question, I think, uh, would be about uh, I really enjoyed this uh, Joe Cadamesa. I think it was maybe how you pronounce his name. He was one of the tech guys, and and I tell you what, that's a, he's the first tech guy I ever saw surface uh, talking about their work because they are notoriously notoriously secretive about their work. And, uh, well, they are. I mean, the Palma Boy uh, um, Social Club. It, I forget how many I how many weeks it took them to actually finally get in there to plant that bug because we were waiting and waiting and waiting to you know go up on that to see what we were going to get and um, to this day I mean I've, tra- I've I've testified in several mob trials and defense attorneys always try to find out well you know do you know how they planted that bug yeah. and I know nothing about what they do. <laughs> So that any time I would uh, testify, I could honestly say I have no idea how they got in there. Yeah, yeah. So he's, he's such a character, he's, and he's worked such big cases. Yeah. Well, Sam Hopkinson, he was the director. I, what was that? Well, he was pretty successful young director. How, how was he to work with? Yeah, that's my. Yeah, we had trouble on my interview because the driver didn't show up. I was late to get there, and the pizza parlor, we only had X amount of time. And there was so much extraneous noise from the street that the sound guy, every time I went to open my mouth, he would jump up, and we had to stop. <laughs> I, I thought to myself, I, how could this make sense? Because we had to constantly stop. But, you know, I liked that face, the fast format, the way he would go between um different people and i love seeing the old new york footage of the the commercials and the uh, anchors yeah. on the different tv stations it was, yeah. it's brilliant i thought it was really quite brilliant i, I did too I, I that's one reason i asked that question because i love the way he said it in the context of new york and what new york city was like at the time because we forget you know it was it mm-hmm. was a pit i mean just to walk up and down the streets in manhattan it, it was like dangerous and and it was dirty and it was graffiti filled and and people people i remember we had some coppers that were going to go with the royals to to the, one of the world series or playoff games in new york city and and they were talking about it and it's like man they were they were saying well i'm taking my gun along with me because that place is scary <laughs> 
Right. I know. It really was. And the homeless people, there were two guys living in a cardboard refrigerator box when I would walk. The, our St. Andrew's Plaza was right across the street from the federal building. So I had to walk across these plaza. These guys would be sitting there and, you know, in uh, cold weather and, you know, with a some bottle of booze in their hands. And yeah. it was just kind of a depressing thing every morning walking over there and just seeing that for one thing. But that's where they lived. They yeah. lived there uh-huh. for months. <laughs> it's become yeah, a higher rent district great. higher rent district now in Manhattan, hasn't it? Oh, know. very much so. Very much so. I don't know. We've got some of that going on in Kansas City. I don't know what you do about that. All right, Charlotte, this has been great. You know, when I ask personal question, uh this guy said that you were once an alternate on the Olympic ski team. Is that correct? <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't the Olympic ski team. Oh, he thought it was the Olympic <laughs> ski it team. It was kind of a for, informal thing where we it was called the uh, the North America the North American Ski Championship, and it was FBI, Secret Service, DEA, London Police Department, oh. Melbourne came in all over, uh, all over the world, law enforcement for this big ski uh, week. Out usually it was out in um, Colorado, and we would ski against one another. And I, you know, for my age group, I was winning a lot <laughs> <laughs> do you happen to know an agent elaine smith from chicago she you know that rings a bell she's a big skier i just interviewed her she was she was the first female agent in the oc squad in in chicago and they handed her this ken edo who was uh actually who was he was a japanese uh um immigrant and he was a big gambler for the outfit and, and she ended up turning him and and he was one of those traveling witnesses after she turned him so uh, uh i thought maybe you guys might have been on that ski team together because i know she's a big skier anyhow you know, so i know that yeah I, I know that name and talk who was the oc supervisor in chicago he and i were in training school together nah. and we you know we talked on the phone a lot. We got together at conferences. That does ring a bell. I mean, I might have met her. I'm, in fact, I'm probably sure I, I have. Yeah, it's a, it's a big place. Like, people ask me, well, you know this cop or that cop? And I said, well, you know, we had about 1,500 people. I didn't exactly. I may have recognized their name, but I, I don't, don't really, never really knew them because I didn't work with them. All right, Charlotte, this is this has been great. I, I really appreciate it. And wiretappers out there, we call, I call my fans wiretappers. Wiretappers out there, this is a great series. I, I, I got a kind of a pre preview of it. Got to watch all three of them last weekend before it was even released, and and I really love that it was told from the view of the uh, law enforcement. They had a couple of mob guys in it, but but they were not. They kind of were for color. I think it was really what was colorful about it was was how these cases are made and in in really mm-hmm. great detail. And and they simplified a lot of really complicated things like the Racketeer Influence Corrupt Organizations Act and and how that worked. They've got an expert on there. Uh, what's his name? Bob Blakely. Blake, Bob Blakely, yeah. I, I saw him do a talk when that thing first came out at an intelligence unit seminar, and, and uh, he can really explain it in simple form than which people can understand what you need to do in order to make a, a RICO case and take down an organization rather than just, you know, you take out one guy and somebody just steps in and takes his place. Take out another right. guy, somebody steps in and takes his place. So you got, you had to figure out how to take down the whole organization. And that movie, that, that three part documentary really tells exactly how that happens. It's, it's really interesting. I right. thought it was well done. High production values too. All right, All right Charlotte, I thank you. Okay, Gary. All right. Well, it was nice talking to you. It was nice to talking you. to you. Goodbye. Okay. Bye bye.
If you're a veteran and you believe you have problems that might be from PTSD that's connected to your service time, call your local vet center or the local VA hospital in your area, or there's a national hotline, 1-800-273-8255, and press 1 if you're a vet. You can go to www.ptsd.va.gov, and this site contains a lot of uh, interesting information and a lot of good resources. When the COVID's over, as we say, when the COVID-19 virus is over and everybody's getting back to work, you can hit me up for a cup of coffee or a shot and a beer on my Venmo app, Gangland Wire. I've got my two movies out there, Brothers Against Brothers, The Savella Spiro War, and Gangland Wire, which is the kind of the story behind the movie Casino, the story about the mob war in Kansas City that led to the uncovering of the skimming information. Got Leaving Vegas, How FBI Wiretaps Ended Mob Domination of Las Vegas Casinos. Get the Kindle version. You can link the, uh, I've linked the wiretaps, actual audio from the wiretaps to sections in the book. Good evening, folks. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey. Casey.